so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. ERLC National Conference, Daniel Patterson joined Nicole Lino, Lauren Chandler, Micah Fries, and Halimsa to talk about balancing Christian ministry with parenting and family life. The panelists, who all serve as ministry leaders, share personal stories and explain how they balance their calling in ministry with their calling as husbands, wives, and parents. We hope this message encourages you. It's good to be with you all. My name is Daniel Patterson really excited about this panel because we're really getting to some of the practicality issues when we think about ministry and church and life together. You know, the theme of this is the family life of Christian leaders. And many of you all are in ministry. Many of you all are Christian leaders, but not everyone in this you know, room is necessarily in vocational ministry. But every one of us have to deal with how do we protect our time? How do we invest in our family? How do we prioritize? How do we keep first things first? And those are things we want to talk about this morning. Really excited to have uh, this group here with me. Uh, Nicole Lino here to my left is the uh, mother of four children. Uh, She and her husband, Nathan, are uh, planted Northeast Houston Baptist Church 15 years ago. And uh, she is a great voice on this issue. Lauren Chandler is a mother, speaker, writer, songwriter, and really happy to have you. Micah Freeze, pastor of Brainerd Baptist Church outside of Chattanooga, Tennessee. And Halim Suh, who is pastor of teaching and theology at the Austin Stone Church in Austin, Texas. So let's jump right in. Nicole, I'd love to hear from you. You know, we hear it often that a pastor and a family's first priority should be their family. So how have you organized your home to model that to your family to show that family does come before these other things? Well, there's a couple of things that we would try to do. We would, uh, first of all, when we're together, when we're home, uh, we're actually present. We're actually there. Uh, Try to be as best we can. Uh, So do turn off the phones or do set them down. Leave them in the car when you go into dinner at the restaurant or whatever it is. So try to actually be there uh, when you're watching uh, middle school football that is questionable about how well it's going to go. You know, turn the phone off. Uh, Don't let them see you on the phone in the stands. And then um, secondly, I would say be realistic about the change in seasons of your ministry. Like there are just stressful seasons in your church or in your org where you know you're going to have to spend more time there. And so uh, be realistic about those expectations um, with the people that you lead and with your family. Uh, And so then you can set up some ideas about how it's going to look during those seasons. 
I remember one of my more convicting moments as a father was when we had my oldest was then one, and she had something rectangular in her hand, and she held it up like this to almost as, as like, oh. okay, you're doing a selfie pose. Uh, they were, phones are a little too big a part of our life right now, and that's you know one of the things that I tried to model is like you know now when I'm daddy daughter day, it's like. I don't need my phone. I'm with you. Yeah. You know, yeah. like why, why would I need my phone? So Micah, you know, on that same theme, you know, what measures have you put in place practically to make sure that you're not neglecting your family in the midst of all your pastoral uh, ministry responsibilities? Yeah. So Daniel, that's a good question. And I think one of the things that, that I've struggled with that Tracy and I've struggled with is trying to constantly maintain work-life balance, right? We hear that often. I think work-life balance is a myth, yeah. uh, frankly, and I think it leads to stress, frustration. Uh, if we're constantly spending every week just trying to manage and balance that, make sure that we're giving equal time, or you know, we're going to find ourselves burnt out, frustrated. Our kids are going to be frustrated with us. So we like to think in terms of rhythms. We've been doing this for years now. And we recognize that in ministry life, we just go through seasons, rhythms, that sort of thing. We do a couple of things to help manage that. We do a lot of, uh, Tracy and I do a lot of calendaring together, right? Trying to look three months out in advance. Mm-hmm. Where's she at? Where am I at? I spend a lot of time on the numbers at the church, trying to manage numbers and watch the numbers. And so I go back about seven to eight years and I try and track, uh, I do a visual graph of attendance, seven to eight years overlaid over each other. And what I do by watching that is I can see sort of where the heavy rhythms of the church are going to be just mm-hmm. visually at a glance. And that helps me both with sermon planning but really when it comes to family life planning. So we think in terms of rhythms rather than um, work-life balance. That means that we recognize and we talk to our kids about the fact that there are going to be times when daddy's rhythm or mom's rhythm is just going to be a little heavier, and, and that's okay because we're going to plan both before and after that rhythm to have extra time together. Another thing we do as we, as we sort of understand rhythms is we don't do lengthy vacations, and it may, may just be us. I don't like one to two week vacations. We do it at Christmas. That's about the only time. I'm too hyperactive. I like work. If I do a week or two, I get sort of cranky. The kids get frustrated with each other. We don't do one or two week long vacations. We do at least every quarter, two to three nights where we get away and just try and decompress. And so, you know, it, it doesn't have to cost any money. You know, somebody in the church has a house somewhere where you could run to for two or three days. Mm-hmm. But we try and do that rhythmically through the year, and we try and manage those times before and after heavy, heavy rhythms so that the kids understand, yeah, dad's going to be, you know, we're getting ready to go into the, one of those right now, right? Back to school has just happened, uh, so my kids are busy. This is our heaviest, one of our two heaviest times of the year in terms of attendance and responsibilities at the church. I'm getting ready to go overseas for two weeks. We know it's going to be heavy. We had some time with our kids not long ago, and then we've got time scheduled immediately after this just so that we can get away and decompress. So for us, trying to eliminate the idea that every week's got to be balanced and moving toward understanding the rhythms of ministry and life has been really helpful. Lauren, you're at a large church. Your husband is the pastor. You're busy. You're writing. You're speaking. You're traveling. Everyone always wants to have a conversation with the pastor. All sorts of demands on your family's time in that respect. What are the things that you all do to unplug, recharge, and signal to your children, you know, you're loved, this is your time, we're investing in you right now, to to where they don't feel that constant, you know, tugging on the coat sleeves? Right. I try to, so our kids are in public school, and so I try to use a lot of that time while they're at school to meet with people, 
to schedule uh, just meetings, coffees during that time. So they're already not home and not really missing me. Yeah. Um, they might be missing home, but they're not missing me. <laughs> and um, so I try, we try to do that. And so the after school hours um, are for them, are for uh, the practices they're going to, um, for family dinners when we have those. So we try to be sparse in planning uh, dinners with either people from the church or someone that wants to, you know, have dinner with us. We try to spread those out so that um, we're not spending those after-school hours away. Um, And then we also have the rhythms too, like you said, Micah, where, you know, we communicate. I think communication is so helpful. Communicate to my kids, hey, it's going to be a crazy season, but at the end, we're going to go do this and we're going to have this time together. Um, And even using the trips that Matt goes on as family time. Uh, Matt had the opportunity to go to Ireland to preach at a, a summer youth conference, and it was incredible. What was so interesting is we did all this uh, touristy stuff on the, on the front end of it, but our kids loved the youth conference the most because they felt like they got to be a part of what dad was doing. They got to meet people, um, like real Irish people, <laughs> and see what they really uh, do. And actually, God spoke uh, through some of the uh, Irish youth to our, our 14-year-old. So that was really cool. Um, and then our 14-year-old is going to go with us to a trip to California next weekend. So even just redeeming those opportunities that we have um, to kind of unplug. Um, and also we try to put our phones away in the evenings as we can. Matt, Matt does that better than I do. <laughs> I have different things I'm trying to coordinate. In fact, he doesn't get email on his phone. Um, he doesn't have the internet on his phone. He really just has texts. And um, so that helps us stay unplugged when we're at home with the kids. I was telling a group yesterday, I remember the, the moment that I realized I had too many things popping up on my phone and distracting my yeah. life was when a CNN app buzzed to tell me that a cat had entered the race for the United States presidency. <laughs> I was like, I do not need this interrupting uh, my life, so right. we need to uh, change the settings on the phone a little bit. That's helpful. Halim, I, I remember um, one of the professors where I went to school a long time ago had a uh, thing up on his door that said PhD students, and it had a triangle, and it uh, sleep good grades, social life, and then said, pick two, you know, which, okay, I get that. But I feel like a lot of times we have that same approach to ministry, that there's a picture of super dad out here that's just constantly, you know, crushing it with this and that, and amazing pastor, but the the two can't, you know, you can't be both. Uh, And yet scripture doesn't put an asterisk beside the call to faithfulness in those areas, uh, that the Lord has given us for those in ministry. So how do you uh, work towards faithfulness in both of those areas without neglecting one or the other? Yeah, I think one of the things I have to keep doing is cast off this notion that my calling to be a pastor and my calling to be a husband or a father are somehow equal callings, that these are equal stewardships that God has placed on my life. Because if you look at the scriptures, you know, Matthew 25 says, if you've been faithful with little, you will be entrusted with much. In First Timothy, where Paul is giving the qualifications of an elder, and he says that he must be able to manage his own household well. If he cannot manage his own household, how can he manage, manage the household of God? And the answer is, you can't. And so God has entrusted to me a bride, my wife, Angela, 
And so if I'm, not, if I'm not loving her and serving her, if I'm negligent and leading her and pointing her to Jesus, well, why in the world should he entrust to me the bride of Christ? God has already entrusted to me four children, four of his precious children he's entrusted to me. And if I'm not around to um, ask them about their day, roll around on the ground and wrestle with them, teach them and discipline them when they need it, why in the world should he entrust to me more of his precious children? And so if I'm at church and preaching and teaching God's word, I'm hardly opening up the scriptures for my own kids. If I'm leading passionate prayer meetings at church, but all I want to do at home is watch Netflix, you know. If, if I'm being compassionate and kind and patient towards church members, but when I'm at home, I'm being short and, and, and short-tempered and, and irritable. You know, one of the most convicting things that my wife said to me was she said that, Halim, I wish that whenever I come to you with the problem, I wish sometimes that you would just treat me like a regular church member mm. because you're so kind and patient with them and short with me and patient with me. Mm. You know, so convicting. And so if I look at my life and I see that there's this massive disconnect between who I am and what I do as a pastor and who I am, what I do as a father and a husband, I really shouldn't look at that and think to myself, oh, I'm having a hard time balancing these two things. I think Jesus might look at this and call it hypocrisy. Mm. Um, I think as pastors and, and Christian leaders, like you're saying, you know, the issue really isn't a balancing issue. I think it really is a faithfulness issue. You know, when we think about ministry, one of the realities that anyone in ministry faces is the fishbowl effect of, you know, for anyone in leadership, there's the expectation that you are... Uh, thousand times holier, better, more wonderful, and, and coming with that is expectation on your children. So, you know, and how do you all uh, help guard your children from expectations? What do you do to think through those realities in your own lives? And I'd love to hear from any or all of you on that, because I'm sure you have unique perspectives. Yes, yeah, so I, I would say... As pastors and leaders who stand in front of people and lead those people, we have an obligation to teach our people how to relate to our families, right? And so, uh, you know, I've been at Brainerd now 13 months. I was here in Nashville and before I went there. And, and, and one of the things I did when I went, when I, the first day I met with the first group of people from the church, talked about it from the platform with the, with the people in the church, is I expect of my family the same thing I expect of every member in the church. Come to church weekly be involved in a life group, find some area of ministry that fits you and your giftedness and do that. And I, I'm not, I'm a pretty even-keeled guy. I don't get worked up. I don't think anybody in our church has ever heard me raise my voice, you know, in anger or frustration, unless you mess with my family. And, I, and I'll just get mean. And I mean, I, I will. And I think there's, there's some level that we've got to do that. But here's the other thing. Theologically, we have built churches around a consumer environment, right? So I, I'm convinced that America sits on a twin pillars of autonomy and consumerism or, or materialism, right? And the way we feed that in the church is we view ourselves as religious professionals who dispense religious goods and services to people who come to watch the professionals. And when we do that, we then begin to view pastors and people on the platform as actors on a stage, right? And so we have a very poor theology of covenant community. And so as pastors, as church leaders, we need to help train our people to rethink the way they view church. We shouldn't look at church the way I go buy blue jeans, right? Here's how I buy blue jeans. I look for the coolest store that offers me the most comfortable fit and asks of me the smallest price. People look at churches the same way. I want the coolest place that fits me best and asks the least of me. And when we create these consumer environments, we lift up pastors and their families to heights that they shouldn't be at rather than understanding all of us as family members 
who are legitimately more family than our blood relatives who don't know Jesus, and treating each other like we do our families. So helping train churches, I think, is a big part of what we do as leaders to help protect our children. Yeah. Well, I would say practically for, for my kids, um, you know, first of all, Nathan does a really good job of, of leading our people, and his staff and, the, and our people all know you, you don't mess with us. And so I, can, <laughs> I really appreciate that. Uh, but practically for our kids, um, there's just something that we've told them since they were little and every time they leave and something we're really trying to instill in them, and that's three things. Do three things. Try hard, obey, and have fun. And, you know, a three-year-old, try hard, obey, and have fun. They might not get it. Our 13-year-old gets it. When you leave, you, you try hard at everything you do. When you're an adult, you work as unto the Lord. You try hard. Uh, you obey. When you leave our house, you obey your authorities. Um, as an adult, you're going to obey and pursue holiness and righteousness. Um, and have fun. Enjoy the blessings God is giving you. Go out and have fun at school. Enjoy being around your friends. Um, so three things. And those are the three things we want you to do. And after that, it, it, it's okay. And really, it gives them a lot of freedom to be themselves. And those are just our expectations of them. And we would expect that of any church member to pursue Christ and have fun and obey. That's great. Lauren, in the midst of all the different ministry commitments and all the times they see mommy and daddy walking out the door to go to church or go to Mm -hmm. preach or go to, how do you keep your children excited about life together in the church and not see it as something that daddy's got to go off to work or mommy's got another, you know, how, how does ministry not become laborious? How do you try and keep that a happy thing with yeah. your kids? I think we've been blessed with a great community um, at our church where we have men and women, young women in particular, who love our kids. And actually there's a young woman that lives with us. Uh, we have like a garage top apartment and uh, one of her close close guy friends, they'll come over and hang out with our kids. And um, they not only serve in church, they also are one of them's on staff. And so um, having them in our home, letting them take our kids somewhere. Actually, they go, they have a ministry to some kids in a trailer park uh, in our area. And my kids love going with them. And so they see this side of ministry and the village church that has a lot of life in it, that has a lot of adventure and purpose. And um, probably one of the greatest uh, graces and blessings in our life has been this young woman and and young women and men like her who have um, just adopted our kids and has made the village church not a bad phrase in our home, but a really blessed one. And also just they come hang out at church with us. When I've got rehearsal on a Saturday afternoon and I don't have someone to help me with them at home, they come along and Nora, our eight-year-old, gets to dance in the aisles while, you know, she gets to sing on the microphone and um, it ends up being a place that's kind of their second home. We are blessed with a, a sweet community. That's, and that's helped. Nicole, I've heard you say you want your home to be the primary place that your children see the gospel and you know, the gospel is modeled. Does that have implications for how you're trying to model you know, to the church um, about how you know, you're, you're trying to structure your family life? It's hard. Yeah. I mean, it's not an easy thing to do. Um, but giving our kids um, really the idea that 
the things that we're doing and the things that our family is involved in, it's because of our, our love for Jesus and our love for his agenda and his plan for the nations. And so letting them see that at home and talking about that really allows them to when they're around church members to really be able to communicate that and be excited about that so that they're not, uh, it's not a downer um, (laughs) to be with the people. Um, But just really instilling in them, like, we do this because of our love and our worship uh, for the Lord and uh, really wanting them to grab hold of that mission and that idea that they're going to to go and be a part of his kingdom and his plan. Uh, We want them to see that at home and others to be able to see that. Hello. As we think about equipping kids, you know, one of the things that we as parents all want to think through is how do we, how do we disciple our children? You know, Mike is talking about the professionalism of ministry, and I think often it's easy to just like, like this is a service that we are outsourcing to pastor so-and-so to equip my kids, but, you know, we know that we have a primary role. What does that look like in your family as a dad and as um, as you and your wife together, what does discipling look like in, in your family? One of the things that my wife, Angela, and I, we try to do in discipling our kids together is to show them that we are disciples ourselves. And so we try to spur each other on towards obeying Jesus and obeying Jesus in really difficult and hard areas of life and inviting our children into that process. And, and really our hope is that as we try to obey Jesus as much as we can in hard and difficult areas, our kids growing up in that environment don't view those things as hard and difficult, but just as normal. And so um, growing up, my dad was a pastor, and, and he, um, whenever he went on a hospital visit, he would take me with him. And um, so now that I'm grown and I'm a pastor, I'm a massive introvert. But for some reason, when it comes to making hospital visits, I don't find it difficult or daunting. I think it's because he invited me into his pursuit of obeying Jesus. And so when it came time for me to obey Jesus in the same arena, it wasn't difficult or daunting. Um, We have a prayer closet at home, and um, whenever our kids are looking for their moms and they can't find her, um, right away, they, one of the places they always look for is the, is the prayer closet. And I love that because that was a hard thing for us to obey, to find a place and a time of regularly going to God in prayer. But our kids just view it as normal. Where's mom? We don't know. She must be in the prayer closet, you know? And so, um, and, even, and even without us telling them, sometimes we can't find one of them and they're in the closet doing who knows what, but they're in the closet. <laughs> <laughs> um, That's a different session. <laughs> right. And really the hope is when it comes to the pers- pursuit of obeying Jesus, give them shoulders to stand on. Uh, show radical and difficult obedience. It may be radical and difficult for you, but by, but by obeying Jesus in those areas, you make it normal for them. You make it not daunting, not difficult. And so that when they're grown and they have their own families, their pursuit of radical, difficult obedience is just at a whole other level. One quick question for each of you. So often when we think about parenting or discipleship, you know, we want to help. We want a resource. We want a, a guide to help us. What's a book or two or a resource or two that each of you have found helpful? It doesn't have to be the best. I'm sure you each have a unique thing that you've found helpful for one reason or another that I'm sure would be helpful to one or two folks in here. Uh, feel free, anybody, to pop in. I'd love to hear any ideas you have on that. Well, the thing I've used the most would be, um, it's called Child Training Bible. 
com. And it's, this is for all of our heart issues. So it's literally tabs and highlighter. So it's in your Bible. And so um, especially once they started um, to learn how to read, it was great. Because <laughs> you can just hand them and say, read all the anger verses, and then we'll talk about it. Um, but it's, so it's tabbed, color-coded, um, and you can easily get to those scriptures to deal with whatever heart issue is happening uh, with that behavior. And that's probably the thing that I've used the most. Um, in my mothering, um, day in and day out. That's very helpful. There's a book by, um, I'm going to get the names wrong, I think it's Taransky and Miller, called Parenting is Heart Work, H-E-A-R-T, and really tries to help us reframe the way we understand our responsibility to raise our children. Um, J.D. talked about it the other night, trying not to just modify behavior, but trying to help shape their heart to love Jesus and embrace the gospel. We found it really, really helpful. We talked about Jesus Story Bible last night. That was always been our go-to, you know, when our, all of our kids were so young. We are kind of graduating and shifting into a book called um, New City Catechism, and um, that's been really good for us. We've used the Jesus Story Book Bible a lot, and then also uh, the He Reads Truth and She Reads Truth have been real helpful. My five-year-old was with me last night. Uh, at a dinner where Sally was, and I was trying to, I found myself trying to explain, like, she wrote the Bible. I was like, no, no, no. <laughs> accidental heresy, and uh, but we're the same way. Uh, so anyway, uh, Mike, uh, ministry in any context, in the best of times, yeah. you are bearing the weight of burdens that you know in your congregation, sicknesses, you know, wanting to reach people in your community, just all the, the struggles that come with that. But every one of us has experienced or will experience a time in ministry that can be downright mean, toxic, and just really, really hard. How do you lead through in your family in those times, uh, particularly with your children, to where, you know, I'm sure you're worried about what they see, what they observe, what that causes them to think about the people of God or about the faith itself. What, what have, you, have you experienced that? Yeah, there's a few things that I would say. First is to help your kids have an understanding that every church is broken and every pastor is broken. Mm. Every church is led by a broken pastor leading broken people. So your kids need to, we, we keep a lot of stuff from our kids. I mean, there's you know, a lot of things that happen in the church that we keep from them, but we don't keep everything from our kids. We want them to know some of the good and the difficulty of serving in a church. And we don't want pastoring a church to be romanticized like getting married is romanticized, right? I mean, we, we make it out to this sort of ideal. It's just hard. It is. It's good. It's rewarding, but it's hard. So we say at our church almost every Sunday from the pulpit, I say, look, everybody in the room has their own little brand of crazy. And the reality <laughs> is we all do. I do. And so yeah. let's, in, in a consumer culture that I talked about earlier, the greatest sin is the sin of openness about our brokenness. And, and we've got to be able to be at a place where we can be open about our brokenness, where it's not just kept behind closed doors and hidden from everybody. Um, our church needs to know it. My kids need to know it. My kids need to see mom and dad extending a lot of grace and love. I would hope we kind of have gotten to a place where we understand depravity enough to never, never be surprised when depravity pops up in our church. It, it, it shouldn't be shocking we should be prepared to constantly extend grace and love and to love the bride of Jesus when the bride of Jesus doesn't, when the bride of Jesus looks a whole lot like, like Gomer in the Old Testament, right? And so our, my kids, seeing mom and dad genuinely love the bride of Jesus when the bride of Jesus isn't being very loving to us. So there's that. And then am I helping my kids to understand their own depravity? When they see depravity on display in the church toward mom and dad or, or toward the family, 
do they understand we're not different than them, right? We're deeply depraved. You little children, like every little child's little demon in flesh, right? I mean, they, you don't teach them to do bad. You teach them to do good. They're all bent on badness. Do you help your kids know that in a loving age-appropriate way, and in knowing that, are you constantly pushing your kids to the gospel? Mm. Our hope is not a healthy church. Our hope is not dad is super pastor. Our hope is not mom and dad leading extraordinarily well. Our hope is Jesus, and Jesus leads us to hope in the gospel in the middle of broken situations. And the, the last thing I would say is this. Make sure that you're not perpetuating it. I think a lot of pastors are unhealthy without realizing it. Everybody's broken, I like to say everybody's got their own daddy issues, maybe not problems with their dad, but all of us have emotional baggage. Every person on the planet tries to self-medicate. The people in the pews do it through food or alcohol or work. Pastors self-medicate through ministry. And we, we like to say that we don't love the super pastor syndrome, but the truth of the matter is when someone comes up to us and says, Pastor, nobody preaches the word to us like you do. Something deep down in our psyche says to us, you matter, you're important. You have value. And what happens when we have this unhealthy emotional attachment to ministry is we perpetuate environments where brokenness continues and we keep going at it because we need it, right? We need to be super pastor, to be validated and valued as an individual. And we craft environments that are unhealthy for our kids. So are we using the church as an emotional crutch for us? Are we helping our kids to understand their depravity? Are we pushing them toward the gospel? And then sometimes there are just churches where you do have to get out. I mean, if it's severely toxic, it's better that you go work a secular job, keep your family and love Jesus, than keep your church, lose your family, and turn them all bitter towards Jesus. Yeah. That's a good word. Lauren, I want to ask you about, something particularly about ministry wives and ministry kids. I, I've heard many times before the difficulties of, I'm sure there's been a time where you've been, you know, Matt's wife, or, you know, not that that's a bad thing, or, you know, <laughs> you're one of your kids, oh, this is Matt's kid. Yeah. But there, there could be a cumulative effect mm -hmm. to where that can cause some, maybe a seed of bitterness or a yeah. frustration, or I'm not just, you know, whatever the case right. may be. How do you, uh, how do you think through those identity issues uh, in a way that keeps you from you know, falling into anything. Yeah, I think a lot of times I don't realize how deep that goes. Uh, just this attachment I might have to Matt in my identity. And honestly, being real, coming here by myself, I had never been to an ERLC event by myself. I usually have Matt. I'm just, you know, I'm <laughs> on his arm. I'm safe. I know where I'm going. Yeah. I know who I am. I'm Matt's wife. And coming here and, you know, walking into spaces where... Sometimes people don't recognize me because I'm not with Matt. And how I uh, realized what comfort, and it was kind of nice being rec recognized as Matt's wife. So coming here and, and seeing, I didn't know it till I came by myself, um, which is really good for me to see, um, God, that you, you've made me, um, yes, to be Matt's wife, but you've made me to be Lauren. And you've given me gifts, and you've given me a voice, and you've given me opportunities to use. Um, and I think I can hide behind that very easily um, and say no to things because it's uncomfortable. It's something that I've got to step out in. So uh, if I err on one side, it's probably to find too much identity in him. And so saying yes to some things that don't have him with me, um, saying yes to some things that make me uncomfortable, <laughs> yeah. and um, making sure that I'm being obedient to the things God has put before me that aren't the same as Matt, um, and being okay with that, 
offering being a little bit clumsy at first and then growing in that. I think a lot of times, because Matt, a lot of preaching comes naturally to him. He's had a lot of reps. When I'm invited to teach somewhere, I feel real clumsy. It was actually really encouraging to hear Andrew Peterson last night because I love to write a story and read it aloud. And I've only done it once, kind of in a setting like this. And I thought, oh, I'm not allowed to do that. I've got to, I've got to like speak like Matt does and have these points and, you know, be as demonstrative as he is. And last night it was like the Holy Spirit just kind of tap tapping, like, Hey, I put this in your heart and look, he's doing it. Like it's possible. You can do this. It's acceptable. Um, and so those are some ways I've been able to establish my own identity apart from that. And sure, there are times I'm like, I am a separate person. I'm not just Matt's wife. I have a first name. Um, but even encouraging my kids to, um, to find the things that when they do it, like in, um, the movie, uh, Chariots of Fire, that when they do it, they feel the pleasure of God, um, to do those things, to encourage them to do that, to find this identity outside, um, of their father and their mom, and also to kind of help them when they're in situations where maybe they feel a little used. That our 14 year old in particular seeing where uh, some of her friends will talk a lot about us and, and it makes her feel uncomfortable and just uh, helping her navigate those relationships um, to even have hard talks, even at 14, talks that are hard for even 37 year olds to have where you say, hey, I value our friendship, but it makes me uncomfortable when this. So um, those are the ways we're trying to help our kids and myself have separate identities from their father. That's a good word. Uh, Halim, you know, as we're thinking through, we've talked a lot about discipleship and raising our children up in the faith, but, you know, the reality is, is that any family can have a prodigal. And that often, in my experience, results in, you know, I, I know church contexts where it's almost, oh, you know, Tom and Jane, they've got little David, just don't, you know, don't talk about it, you know, or there's a, there's a sense of shame or a sense of despondency. And what encouragement do you have toward parents maybe in this room or, you know, watching online that may have a son or daughter that has abandoned the faith or reject the faith and even hostile ways to think through loving them and um, living with that in the community of the church? So, Wadey, um... I think I would first say trust in the sovereignty of God, trust in his goodness, um, trust that salvation belongs to the Lord, and that no amount of good parenting can save your kids, no amount of bad parenting can damn your kids. Salvation belongs to the Lord. You weren't created, you weren't designed to bear the weight of somebody else's salvation upon your shoulders. Only Jesus can bear that weight. And so cling to him, trust in him, hope in him. And hope, because your child may be a prodigal, but what happens to the prodigal son in the story? What happens to him? Why is that story in the Bible? That story is in the Bible to show us that whether it's us or whether it's our child, nobody's too far gone. Somebody can look at God and say, I wish you were dead. I'm going to take all your stuff and go off to the faraway country and live the way that I want. But God is able to bring him back. God is able to restore him back to himself. Some of you are sad, some of you are distraught, some of you are angry even, right? You're wondering, how could God do this to my child? 
Well, all, all I can say is that God knows the pain. He intimately knows the pain, to, what it's like to look at his own son suffer away from his presence. And so trust in him and, and, and hope in him. Um, but I think we have to ask, we have to be honest enough and brave enough to ask the question of, okay, so what if God doesn't save? What if he doesn't save my child? Will I still be satisfied in God? Will Jesus still be enough? Will I be able to say in faith, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord? Or will I be angry or will I walk away? There's countless faithful, Jesus-loving parents who've lost their children to disobedience and unbelief even unto death. And what God promises is that one day he will wipe away every tear from your eyes. You may not understand in this lifetime, but one day in glory you will. And so hope, trust, but place your hope and trust in the right place, in the right person. Not that God will save your child. Ultimately, we don't know. Place your hope and trust in the things that are unshakable, God's sovereignty, and that all that he does is good. Thank you for that. You know, as we wrap this up, I, you know, I, there are lots of things that we could have covered, and I'm sure in each of your lives and ministries, you, you've got a struggle that uh, you may think is unique to you, but would benefit uh, the men and women in this room. Is, is there anything that uh, you feel like has been a struggle or a category in your life and parenting and ministry uh, that would be helpful to throw out as we think through life and, you know, life and leadership as ministry leaders. Yes. So I would say that the biggest change in our parenting over the last almost 14 years now that we've been doing it has been re-understanding what discipline means with our children and how that helps them understand God. When I was grappling with Romans, you know, Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I realized that God does not engage punitively with his children, mm. right? Theologically, if God punishes us, then he denies the cross. Jesus has taken our punishment on the cross. And so therefore, sin is disobedience with God, but God disciplines us, not punishes. He disciplines us to point us away from sin toward flourishing. That's mm. the great devastation of sin is that keeps us from flourishing the way God designed it. So thinking through that theologically and how then I engage with my own children. How do I teach my children to love God in his church in the way that I discipline them? Am I angry and punishing them for what they've done? When mm. I do that, I'm looking backward, trying to pay them back for how they've failed. Mm. I don't want to punish my children. I want, to, I want to discipline my children the way God disciplines me. I want to look forward toward flourishing. And I want to use discipline as a corrective tool to point them toward what it means to flourish in the world that God designed for them to be a part of. And so for me to love and enjoy Jesus and love and enjoy his church and then apply corrective discipline in my children's lives the way God disciplines me as a loving father to point them toward flourishing has, has really been radically different in the way we engage our children, hopefully helping craft their hearts to love Jesus and his church and not be bitter, angry, and distrustful, if that makes sense. I would say uh, moms and dads pursue each other in providing rest providing a Sabbath for each other, especially when you have younger children. Parenting is hard. It's exhausting when God said, in pain you will bring forth children. I don't think it was just talking about the birthing process. It's painful to bring forth children. It's exhausting. And so your kids will see you. They will see you fall apart. They will see you at your wit's end. They will see you fail over and over and over again. 
Um, and so what they also need to see is moms taking over so that dads could get away and spend time with Jesus. Dads taking over so that moms can get away and Sabbath in Jesus. And over and over again, your kid's experiencing that this person, this mom, dad that comes back after they go and away and spend time with Jesus is different. It's somehow better. And that you come to them and you say, I'm so sorry for being short with you. Will you forgive me for yelling at you? And they come to this conclusion over a period of time regularly that this Jesus must be real. Because moms and dads, they go away and they come back different and the hearts are changed. And so pursue Jesus for your spouse in resting in him and finding strength in him. Rest in the gospel is a good place to end. So thank you all. And would you thank our panelists uh, one more time? Thanks for listening to the ERLC podcast. Join us online at ERLC.com or subscribe through iTunes or Google Podcast. And join us next time for a gripping message from Nancy Guthrie on parenting children through pain and trials.